I would encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, I, I warned you last week that I didn't know when we were ending officially, but uh, today will be the, the final message in, in 1 Timothy. And it's been an exciting journey for me going through this, this book, this book that is designed by the Lord to be this guide for the, for the church. Of the, what does church government look like? What does church order look like? Or what's the calling of a minister? What's the qualification of a minister? And here at the very end, Paul is drawing all of these pieces together. And as we'll see, he gives two charges. One for the rich. He's coming back to that theme again of the rich in the church. And then he has his final charge to Timothy as well. So again, this is the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'll begin reading in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace of the, the gospel that has been poured out for us through this letter. And Lord, we pray as we wrap up the, the final verses here that you would open our minds, our hearts, that you give us humility to not import our own ideas, but you would give us humility to hear what you have to say, and that in hearing we wouldn't be those who simply hear, but those who hear and do, and those who respond to you in obedience and faith. So we pray in Jesus' name. As you look at our, our text today, you see this word charge, that Paul is giving a charge first to the rich, and he's giving a charge to Timothy. And I was looking at the, the definitions of the word charge, and apparently there are a lot of definitions for charge. You can charge your phone, you can charge your credit card, you can be charged with an offense, but what we see here is this charge to faithfulness. And it, it reminds me of my own ordination service. At ordination services, there's often a charge that uh, there was a charge in my ordination service to me from one pastor. There was a charge to the group that was gathered for the service uh, from another pastor. This charge to, to be faithful, to, to hold to what is true, to what is good. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And again, if you're going to look at this definition of charge, it's 
to impose a task or responsibility on or to command, instruct, and exhort with authority. That's what Paul is doing. And so let's look at the first charge here in our text. Paul's charge to the rich. Now, it was just a couple weeks ago that Paul was picking on the rich. And here he comes back around to this theme again. And he gives this charge to the rich of this present age. And really he wants Timothy to take this charge and deliver it to the rich in this present age. And of course, at the time this was written, this was the rich of the present age being the the rich in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. But then as you think about our context, that we are the rich of this present age. Now, some of you say, I'm not rich. I wish I were. But if you think about our time in history, that we live in an extremely rich period of history, that, that we're not just the, the rich of this present age, but in some ways the rich of the ages in terms of the comforts we enjoy, in terms of the ease of our life, in terms of the things that we own, that if prior generations were able to come to our world and look at all the medical advancements, look at your phone, look at your dishwasher, look at your home, look at your car, they would see us as extremely wealthy. But it's not just our time that is the the rich of this present age, but even our country. I mentioned this also a few weeks ago that just being in America, we are in an extremely wealthy country. That if you ever have the opportunity to travel to the developing world, you, you recognize how much wealth we take for granted here in our world. Or even um, just within our country, you can think about our region, that we are also in an extremely wealthy region, not just of the world, but of Pennsylvania. Chester County is the wealthiest county in Pennsylvania. And here in Garnet Valley and Chad's Ford, people always say we're kind of the Chester County side of Delaware County, uh, that we are a wealthy area. And you see that just even what we were hearing last week from Chris Batten about the, the treks that he's making into Kensington in the city, that, that you look even in our region in the amount of, of poverty in Philadelphia or in Chester or in Wilmington, that we see that, that, that where we are, that we are the, the rich of this present age. And of course, that doesn't mean that there's something inherently wrong. It's not wrong to be rich per se. You can think in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Now Abraham, or Abram, was rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He was wealthy. Or you can think of Job, who it says was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And of course, he was one who was rich. He had a lot of material possessions before he was tested and lost everything. Or you can think of Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27. He's the the man who came to Pilate, requested to take the body down from the cross, And he had an expensive tomb where he laid the body of Jesus. He was a wealthy man, but also a faithful man. So it's not wrong to be rich per se. But then we also know from the Bible that there are dangers of wealth. Matthew 19, verse 23 says, this is Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty 
will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Or you can think earlier in the book of Matthew of Christ's parable of the sower, that, that the, the sower goes out to sow, and the seed represents the word of God that hits human hearts. Some hearts respond, some don't. And he says that as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. And so you see there that it's wealth and that is choking it, preventing the word of God from taking hold in the human heart. So it's not wrong to be rich, but there's also profound danger that comes along with wealth. And that's why Paul here is delivering this charge to the rich of the present age, to the wealthy of the present age. And you'll notice that this charge has a a negative side, what not to do, and then a positive side, what to do. So so notice the, the negative side of the charge in verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. And you say, that's not a word you use every day, haughty. Charge them not to be haughty. This means to be proud, to be arrogant, to be self-righteous, to be puffed up. And of course, this is something that wealth can do. It can lead to pride. That's why back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have given me this wealth. Or you can think of Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, where the, where the Lord speaking through the prophet says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess of food. That sounds familiar. Prosperous ease. That sounds familiar. But did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So you see the prophet there describing this spiritual pride that they had prosperous ease, they had excess of food, they had great wealth, but it it overflowed in rebellion against the Lord. And this can happen when we look at the gifts that God has given us in our life and we start to think that we have these things because of our Goodness, because we're just that great. We worked harder than everyone else. We deserve the things that we have. And so we begin to then look down on others who have less. Or maybe even in the, in the wealth and the prosperity, we can stop depending on God. That we enter the pride of thinking that we're self-sufficient. I mean, that's what we talked about last week, that we are dependent. But when we have money, we can start to think that we are independent, that we don't need God, that, that we can plan for our future on our own, that, that we know where our food is coming from because we have money in the bank, that we don't need to pray, give me this day my daily bread, because we have the daily bread at hand. We stop depending on God, which turns into pride. So that's the, the first part of this, this negative charge here. He says, charge them not to be haughty, But he also says, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
And so you look at that phrase there, the uncertainty of riches. But what we're told so often in our society is that certainty comes through wealth, that, that certainty comes through money, certainty comes through having that bank account, having that retirement, having those stock options. This is where you have certainty. But you'll remember the, the parable of Jesus in Luke 12, where he, he tells the parable of the rich fool. Starting in verse 16, he says that the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So there, in a parable form, you see the uncertainty of riches. You see that this man assumed that his, his future was certain, that because he had grain, because he had great wealth, he could store it up, he could lay back, he could relax, he could eat. He could drink, he could be merry, but then he says, fool, this very night your life is required of you. And you could even think about if you had a, a $20 bill in your wallet. I don't have a $20 bill on me or I'd pull it out and show it to you. Uh, but if you pull out a $20 bill and you look at it you say, okay, that, there's some value there. And But you think about the, that $20 bill and you say, is the, is the paper that is printed on worth $20? No. So why is it valuable? Well, it's backed up by the government. And then you say, well, is there anything of actual value backing it up? Not really. It's more of an agreement between people. But then you think of all the ways that you could lose the value of that $20 bill that you're holding in your hands. You could lose it. You could go to spend it and it falls out of your pocket and you're unable to cash out the value of that paper. Or you, you get somebody pulls out a gun, give me your wallet. Somebody takes your money. You're not able to gain the value of it. Or you decide that you're going to save it for the future when you actually have time to enjoy it. And then inflation continues and then maybe you can buy a stick of gum with it someday. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that could take away the value of the money that you have. But then also, having money is only valuable if there is a supply chain to provide the things that you want to buy. So imagine that there was an enormous disaster in our country, and you go to the grocery store to buy food, and there's no food. Is your money valuable at that point? If there, if there are no products to buy, is the money of any value? And I remember a few years ago reading a, a lay-level economics book, and they were just talking about the idea of value, and that it's so subjective that right now, if I said, do you want a bottle of water or a $20 bill, you would take the $20 bill because you could go to Wawa and buy probably 15 water bottles. But if you were lost in the desert, about to die of thirst, and I said, do you want a $20 bill or a bottle of water, you would take the bottle of water, that 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 piece of paper 
would be completely worthless to you in that moment. And so as you think about it, then you realize how incredibly fragile money is. That's why Paul calls it the, the uncertainty of riches. That as much as we want to put our certainty here, because I didn't even mention death, that you can go to spend that $20 bill and then you end up getting hit by a bus on your way to Wawa, that, that you, you're never able to actually take hold of the value that is there within that currency. And, and the same thing could be said for your home or your car or your credit score or your electronics, whatever it is, whatever you possess that you say, this has value, this is giving me certainty, this is giving me confidence, this is where I can set my hope. He's saying, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, that this is the charge to the wealthy here in our text. That's the, the negative charge. Don't be proud. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. But then this is where he turns to then the positive side. This is what the rich shouldn't do. But then in verse 18, he showed us, shows us what they should do, the positive side of the charge. So look there in your Bible. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. You say then money is not truly life. And he talks about then storing up treasure in heaven, storing up treasure for themselves, having this good foundation. And you think of the imagery of Jesus, that, that money is like the house built on the sand, that eventually the sand can wash away. Or you can think of the, the language of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he says, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So there's the uncertainty of riches. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That if your treasure is in God, you have the firm foundation. You have something that is imperishable, that your, your money is perishable. It can be worth nothing tomorrow. But your relationship with God has infinite value. God is the firm foundation. Your, your money can't buy true life and true happiness, but Christ is the, is the fountain of living water that we can drink freely without price, that, that there's infinite value in our relationship with God. And that's why, as Paul lays out this charge, he tells them, this also has these two subparts, he says, to do good, to be rich in good works. And that's the call to the rich, the charge to the rich. Be rich in good works. Know that it's the, the good works that matter more than the sum of your bank account. And Jonathan uh, led us in our confession of sin where we went through the, the Ten Commandments. And that's what you can think of that is, is a guide to spiritual wealth. It's, it's not how we're saved. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. But as we study, what do good works look like? How do we know what, what it is to be rich in good works? 
That to be rich in good works is to study, to meditate upon, to, to look to the first commandment, not to have any other God but God alone, or to look to the, to the second commandment, to not worship God in images, but as he has revealed himself, or the third commandment, to honor the name of God, or the, the fourth commandment, to set aside one day and seven for worship, or the fifth, to honor your father and your mother and those in authority, the sixth, not to murder, to, to seek the honor of life created in the image of God, the seventh, to not commit adultery, to, to pursue sexual purity in thought, word, deed, the Eighth Commandment, not to steal, to, to honor the, the wealth of others. Ninth Commandment, not to lie, to be people who speak the truth. The Tenth Commandment, not to, to covet, to be content with the things that God has given us. This call to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That this is what we are called to pursue as a response to the grace of God in our life, to be, to be rich in good works, to be to have that be the wealth, the spiritual wealth that characterizes our lives. But then Paul also says not only that he is to be rich in good works, but also he says to be generous and ready to share. This is part of the charge, the positive charge to the rich. Be generous and ready to share. And you can think of the words of John in 1 John chapter 3 where he says, But if anyone has the world's good, goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him how does god's love abide in him little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth and that's a terrifying passage isn't it that he says that if you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you close your heart against your brother he says, how does God's truth dwell in you? That, that he's saying that this is an evidence of, of maybe not actually knowing the grace of God in our life. As we're thinking about assurance before the Lord, what is our response to those in need? And so you can think of this call to be generous, to be generous and ready to share. It means supporting your church in tithe. That means supporting local, national, international missions, Supporting people in your life who you know may need support. And it's not just about money. It's about generosity with your home and hospitality, generosity with your time and service, generosity even just in, in the heart for prayer, knowing what others are facing and praying for them and seeking to be there for others, that this is the charge to the rich to be generous. So again, if you take it together, the negative side, don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Positive side, to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share. So this is the, the first charge here in our text. But then now Paul turns and he offers this final charge to Timothy himself. And probably Timothy was, uh, was not a wealthy man, most likely. Uh, he was serving as essentially as a missionary as a church planter as a uh, but yet paul offers this unique charge to him as well so look at verse 20 he says oh timothy guard the deposit entrusted to you avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it some have swerved from the faith and so as you look at these, these final verses, you'll see that 
he's addressing it to Timothy. He says, oh, Timothy. And you remember who Timothy is throughout this entire series, that, that he was young. He told him not to let people despise him for his youth. He was infirm. You remember he said, have a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He was timid because over and over again, Paul is saying, be strong, fight the good fight, that, that he wasn't the type of person that you think of as this bold leadership personality. This, he wasn't a, a dominant personality from everything that we've seen here in our text. And so he needed this charge from his mentor, from the Apostle Paul. But in the same way, I think we can identify with Timothy. This isn't just a charge for ministers like me, but this is a charge for all of us when we feel sick, when we feel weak, when we feel like we can't face what, what life is going to bring, that we need this, this charge, this encouragement, this call. And you'll notice that just as the first charge to the rich had both a, a negative and a positive side, this also has the, the negative and the positive side what not to do and what to do. So look at the, the positive side of the charge. Here he starts with the positive. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And in the original language, this deposit means property entrusted to another. And you say, what property has God entrusted to us? What is the Lord entrusted to his church? that this deposit that we have received is ultimately the, the scriptures, that we have the deposit of the, the written word of God. We have the, the deposit in the primary message of the Bible, the sound words of the gospel that are the power of God for salvation, that the sound words that have been summarized in the great creeds and confessions of the church, the, the sound words that, that are life-giving because they offer the hope of Christ, that we receive this deposit and we're told to guard the deposit entrusted to us. And we guard it by reading the word entrusted to us, by studying it, by defending it against error, by applying it to our lives and seeking to actually live it, and by proclaiming it. I was helped here by John Calvin in his commentary on this text that he referenced Matthew 25 where Jesus offers the parable of the talents. And of course, that's where we get even our English word talent is from Matthew 25, where this wise master gives talents, gives wealth to his servants, and then goes away on a long journey. And it says in Matthew 25, verse 15, it says, to the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five, five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And you remember that when the, the master finally shows up, he rewards the one who had five and made five more. He rewards the one who had two and made two more. But the one who just took the, the deposit and hid it in the ground, he faces judgment from the master when he comes because he thought that the master was only looking to, to maintain what he had been given. But he says that wasn't faithfulness. And I think that there's an, an image here for us as well. When, 
when he says to guard the deposit entrusted to you, that when we guard the deposit of the gospel that we have received, that doesn't mean just holding it to ourselves and guarding it against the, the world, but it actually means boldness in proclaiming the gospel, that we we guard the, the gospel by investing the gospel in the lives of our friends and our families and, and our neighbors, seeking to see the gospel go out to change lives and hearts. This is how we guard the deposit entrusted to us. And that's the, the positive side of this charge. But then look at the negative side as well. He says to do this while avoiding the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And so you see here Paul warning Timothy about what is falsely called knowledge. And most scholars agree that this is an early reference to a heresy that arose in the second century, the generations after the apostles, called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism means knowledge in Greek. And so he's saying, beware of what is falsely called knowledge. And in his church history, Nick Needham says that one of the most serious spiritual threats the Christian church has ever faced arose in the middle of the second century around A.D. 30 to 60, roughly in the lifetime of Justin Martyr. This was the Gnostic movement. The dangerous and divisive thing about Gnostics was their claim that they, not the church, were the true Christians. This created a crisis of identity for the Christian faith and great confusion among pagans about who the real Christians actually were. And so he's saying that in all of church history, it's been one of the greatest threats to the church, that, that right away is in Satan's opposition to the expansion of the gospel, it's, it's flooding the the market with counterfeit Christianity, this Gnostic movement, movement claiming not that the Christianity is about this open proclamation of the truth of God's word, but rather that Christianity is about this secret, hidden, mystical knowledge that you get into the in crowd and then you receive this special, special spiritual knowledge. And it's very similar actually to a lot of New Age spirituality today as well that even draws from some Gnostic sources. And in the, the second century, this was attractive for the church, and it's attractive for us as well. But what Paul is telling Timothy here, and by extension telling us, is to, to watch out for this kind of mysticism, to watch out for the contradictions, for the, the irreverent babbling of those who claim some sort of special spiritual knowledge. Here's the key to your spirituality that you've never heard before, but saying no, that that what we need for godliness, what we need to live in faithfulness, is the, the deposit that we have received. That what we need to grow in the Lord is, is very clearly laid out in Scripture so that the learned and the unlearned can draw it out of, of Scripture. That it's, it's not some sort of unfathomable mystery, that, but it's, it's actually revealed to us in the gospel from the unfathomable Lord God who has given us his revelation. And that this is the call of the Christian church, your call, my call, not to be led away into controversy, into distraction about things that don't matter, but to keep our hearts fixed, firm on the heart of the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And this is the, the second charge here in our scripture. 
to Timothy. But then as we wrap up today, wrapping up not only this, this message, but also wrapping up the book of 1 Timothy, it's significant how he ends this book. Now we think about this charge to the rich. It's telling them what to do. We see this charge to Timothy telling him what to do. But we could be tempted to think that Christianity then is about obeying these charges, to, to be passionate, to be faithful in our obedience. And that's an important part of the, the response. But it's a response to the grace of God, ultimately, that the very heart of the deposit that we have received from the Lord is the grace of God. And that's why at the very end here he says, grace be with you. And this grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's the, the grace that each and every one of us needs because we are sinners, because we can't save ourselves. That if it was up to our effort, we could never do the right thing. We could never earn God's favor. We could never work our way up to him, that we are debtors to grace alone. And you say, well, where do I find this grace? He says, grace to you. And that we find grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's where Paul starts his letters. He, so many of his letters start, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace that we see in Christ taking on a human nature, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death so that we can be forgiven. It's the, the grace of his resurrection, the grace of his ascension, the grace of his coming again, the, the grace of God that worked faith in you, that you couldn't even believe by your own strength, but he worked in your heart, gave you the grace to believe, to turn to Christ, the grace to live, the grace to obey, the grace to have this hope fixed not on the things of this world, but on Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, that your grace is sufficient for us. And we pray that we can be rooted in that grace. And as we're rooted in it, that you would enable us to not root our hope in the things of this world, the uncertainty of riches, or to be proud, but to be humbled by your grace, to desire to be rich in good works, to desire to, to serve those around us. And let us, Father, hold fast to the deposit that we have received. We thank you for the, the infinite value of the word of God, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever, that we would fix our hope there, lay our foundation there on that solid rock. And we thank you that the rock is Christ, that the grace is Christ, that the, the hope is Christ. And we pray that we can today root and be rooted in him by your grace working in us. And so we pray we can know more of your grace every day that we live. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.